Revelation chapter 1, we are going to read verse 4 through 8. Um, let's look at our text and we'll pray. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd bless our time this evening. Um, Lord, thank you that we can gather around your word and learn and fellowship and uh, give praise uh, to, uh, to you and how you are working all things according to your will. We praise you and we thank you. Amen. Last week, we spent more time than I really wanted to talking about the, um, the symbolic numer- uh, significance of, of numbers, in particular um, number 7 and um, number 12. And I, I want to make sure there's, that something's clear because it was, seems like that might have been a misunderstanding for at least one person that I know of that... The 144,000 that I was talking about last week is um, symbolic of the whole church. It's not a literal number. Um, I, I, I was not in any way saying that only 144,000 is, is going to be saved. That would be kind of Jehovah's Witnesses if, if we'd done that. But just understand that as we're working through Revelation, there's going to be a lot of symbolism in things that we see. And so... Um, when we see a number like that, it's not a specific number. It's given indication to the whole of the church. It's representative of the totality of the kingdom. And I want to show you something. Turn, hold your finger right here in, in Revelation 1 and turn over to Revelation 7. So after, in, in that first part of verse 7 where it lists the, the tribes of Israel, we also need to understand too that um, the Israel of God that we see in the New Testament is the believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Um, Galatians 6 is a good example. Romans 11, verse 26, I think it is, it talks about the fulfillment of the Gentiles. And so we see that the reality that we see in the New Testament is God gathering His kingdom, which He calls Israel, together. And so after, and it's talking about this first part, it's talking about the mark of God's servants. And the mark of the people of God is that they have the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a visible mark um, like, you know, like there would be a stamp on someone saying, I'm a Christian or something of that nature. It's given the indication that the mark of a Christian is, one, the Holy Spirit, but also, and we'll see this in the sermon on Sunday in Hebrews, that the evidence that we bring forth or the fruit that we bear um, as, as Christians. And so after he talks about the mark of God's servants and he goes into listing through all these tribes, look what he says in verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, 
which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and, and palms in their hands. So we see not a small number of people going to be gathered around the throne, but a great number of people from nations, tribes, and tongues. So um, understand that it's just a representative of the total of the kingdom of God. Now, um, also understand that as we're going through Revelation, we are unveiling the purpose and plan of God in Christ in His church. We will see a lot of tribulation. We will see judgment um, that comes against those who would bring persecution against um, against the church of God. So these are some things that we need to keep in mind as we're run, as we're going through Revelation. I, I know there's there, there's people that want to interpret it literal, real literal, but we want to interpret it the way that it was understood then and in its in its context. So um, not trying to to make uh, or sensationalize anything. We want to see the message that God has for us. So, we're in the greeting now in verse 4, and I covered a little bit last week, and I'm just going to run through this so we can get into the uh, the stuff I want to get into tonight concerning Jesus. Um, we see John John names himself as just simply as John. He doesn't say John the Apostle, John the Beloved. He just says it's John, most likely because he would have been known in, in that region of, of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey now. The recipients are seven literal churches, and um, what we'll see in chapters 2 and 3 is we see um, Ephesus, the loveless church. They had lost their first love. Um, we see uh, what had happened. They had gotten into uh, doctrinal infighting within the church, um, and so they left their first love, which was proclaiming the gospel, right? Um, we also see uh, Smyrna. The persecuted church. It's a church that, that saw great persecution against them. We see Tower Tower, the corrupt church. Sardis, the dead church. Um, Philadelphia, the faithful church. And Philadelphia is the only church that did not receive condemnation. All of these churches received condemnation and commendation um, with the exception of two. Philadelphia received a, a commendation only for their love and Laodicea re- did not receive a commendation. They received the condemnation because of their lukewarmness. And that's, uh, that's, that's things that we will see um, through that. And I said also that this is a Trinitarian greeting. We see um, there in verse 5, after John introduces himself, he says, Grace uh, uh, be unto you and peace. This was a typical greeting in, in those days. Um, and then he goes on to say, from him which is and which was and which is to come. We see the eternal Father. Um, this, uh, this, we see this as, we, as he lays this out for us. We'll see God's faithfulness through all of history. Through all of, of, of recorded history in the scripture, you see God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to what? First of all, his word. That what he says will come to pass. That what he says he will do, that he will do that. And that's, that's the purpose of the revelation is to give believers the eternal, transhistorical, which simply means transcending historical boundaries, meaning that it's not just specific to one generation, 
um, this perspective of God. It's that you have a transhistorical perspective of God. And what is that? That God's the same throughout all ages. He's the same, as the Scripture says, today, yesterday, and forever. He's, he's not changed one iota, one bit. Uh, when he says, I am, he says, I am the same today as I was um, in, in Moses' day. So we get this picture of, of, of God um, that, that we can have confidence um, that God is the same, enabling them, us Christians, to understand his commandments and motivating them to obedience. We saw that in verse 3. Remember, blessed is he that readeth, heareth, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, and him, him that, uh, where is it at? Keeps those things. That's the word I was looking for. Blessed is him. So there's a blessing to one who will not only read the word of God, but also will hear, will do the word of God, obey, but also the ones that will keep those things in his mind, in his heart. Um, and this is applicable through all ages. This, this passage that was written in AD 95 to these seven churches in Asia is applicable to us in 2021. Now, this expression that is used here is used to inspire confidence in God's sovereign guidance of all earthly affairs and to instill um, courage to stand strong in the face of difficulties that test faith. Um, now, let me say this, and this will be a theme for, for Sunday the evidence of true saving faith is perseverance through trials. It's not, um, you know, it's not wearing I love Jesus t-shirts. It's not <coughs> being faithful when it's popular to be faithful, but it's persevering through whatever may come to pass. Now, verse 8 speaks to this as well. It says the first and, and last, he, he says, the, that which is and which is to come. Now, in the Greek alphabet, you have alpha, the beginning, and omega, the end. So we see God as creator, and everybody understands that, but we also see that God is the one who ushers in the new heaven and new earth. It's God that tells Jesus, hey, it's over with, go get them. That he is the one that not just instituted it, but he is going to culminate it as well. He is Lord of all past, present, and future. Who is and is to come. His, his sovereignty and creation guarantees the fulfillment of his purposes in Revelation. And that's the confidence that we can have that we're not just reading this book and there's this, this being who is a far off distant being that we, um, that, that we think things are going to happen, but we know that these things are going to happen. Matter of fact, go to Ro Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 8. Romans 8 is a tremendous passage that speaks to this. <clears throat> Look at verse, uh, let's start in verse 18. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be, re be revealed in us. These, and he'll, I think he goes on to call it a, a light momentary affliction. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, the, the earth as well as the people of God at the moment are waiting for what? The, the manifestation of the sons of God. We're waiting for the kingdom to be completed. We're waiting for God's family to be completed. 
Look at verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Now, we get this picture that the earth is even groaning in anticipation of the return of Jesus. And that in itself ought to cause us to persevere through whatever trials. It ought to cause, knowing that the earth is groaning ought to cause us to groan even more. And so we get this picture of the sovereign Lord. And then we see secondly, and this is kind of not talking about the seven spirits, but talking about the, seven num- uh, the number seven. So after we are introduced to God, we are now introduced to the spirit, which the, the order of the Trinity, by the way, if you notice that, it, it, it's kind of flipped. It's usually Father, Son, Spirit, but now we see Father, Spirit, Son. He says, from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Now, this, um, this prophetic epistle is also from the seven spirits who are uh, before the, the throne. Now, who are these seven spirits before the throne? What, what, or is it something, is there literally seven spirits, or what is it talking about? Some would identify them with seven archangels in Jewish writings. Um, some with the seven angels of the trumpets and bowls, as we'll see later on in Revelation. But the most likely is a figurative designation, listen closely, of the effective working of the Holy Spirit. Now remember last week we talked about uh, seven, this number of completeness, of fullness, that designates uh, a time uh, that it takes to complete a task. It is the Spirit, not man, but it is the Spirit that enables the church to be effective as a, as a burning lamp of witness in the world. Now, what we will see in the, 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 the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 is a warning that their lamp would, would be taken away if they, didn't, um, if they were not faithful to God. And that lamp is an example or is, is uh, yeah, is an example of their um, of their gospel witness, and, and you got to ask yourself and, and look around and and maybe even say, you know, has God removed the gospel witnesses from many churches? And that, that's some stuff we'll get. In, I don't want to get into tonight, but there's some th- things to consider about that as we work through that. Um, it, it's a a lamp of a burning lamp of witness in the world. Um. And we see this also in Revelation 5, 6. But it's the effective working of the Spirit. I think what happens a lot of times, what you see in a lot of churches, is that we get impatient and waiting on the Spirit to work, and we try to make things work ourselves, and we get in all kind of trouble when we do that. The Spirit is the means of grace by which God effects grace and peace, as we saw in this greeting. He says, grace and peace be to you and by which the church is encouraged to obedience and witness. Now, we see this in Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will take your heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you. John 3, 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. We see the Spirit's role in our salvation, and it's God that gives the Spirit to us so that we will follow Him. Any questions thus far? Is there anything? I'm, I'm trying not to run through this so fast because um, there, there's some application here that, that we're going to look at. Um, I, there's a, Turn to Zechariah chapter 4. I want to show you something in regards to this. There's, there's things that are, are kind of hidden in the Old Testament and they, maybe not as clear 
and then get revealed in the New Testament. And one of those such things is the, the Holy Spirit, the working of the Spirit in Zechariah chapter 4. Verse 2 says, And said unto me, What seest thou? And, he, and I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side of thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. And we could say that in relation to salvation. It's not by might, it's not by status, it's not by um, smarts, IQ, or whatnot, but by the Spirit of God. Um, just kind of a brief history here real quick on, ha- on Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are, are contemporaries, and it was at the end of the Babylonian exile. Uh, they have a common historical background, both having begun their ministries in the second year of King Darius in about 520 B.C. Uh, At that point, the Jews uh, had returned to Palestine under the edict of King Cyrus in 538 B.C. and had, uh, had begun to rebuild the temple. But they were met with opposition from the outside and discouragement from within. Um, and it caused them to abandon the project for about 16 or 17 years. And so... What God is saying in this in regards to that, it's not by might or power, but by my spirit that this will be done. And you say, well, why is this important in regards to particular Zechariah? Well, some would, be, some would try to use this to prove a, a rebuilding of a, or a building of a third temple in Israel. And I know I've read stuff and there's stuff out there all the time that talks about, you know, things are lining up and this temple's going to be built and they've got the word of rabbis and whatnot. But there's a couple things that we need to consider in regard to that. Um, One, if there's going to be another temple built, you know what's going to happen if that temple is built? It's the reinstating of the sacrificial system. In essence, what's happening is they're saying the sacrificial system is better than Jesus' sacrifice. There's there's this uh, reinstating this sacrificial system. But secondly, um, who is the temple today? We are, right? That's what, first, that's what Corinthians says, that we are the temple of God. Um, that is where His Spirit dwells, not in that physical temple. Moving on, in this Trinitarian greeting, we get a, a look at the workings of each person of the Trinity. We see God who is sovereign over all things, who has decreed what is going to come to pass, and, and, and those things are working to that end. And thus far, we've seen the work of the Father and the Spirit. And, and uh, now John praises God in a, way, in a way that is reminiscent of most of Paul's epistles. 
Um, look at back to Revelation one. Beginning in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hold your finger there and go to 1 Corinthians. I want to show you a similar greeting that, that Paul writes to the Corinthians. And it's not just your average greeting of, hey, this is John, this is Paul, the beloved in Christ, so on and so forth. It's actually a song of praise that they give to Jesus. And there's two things in this praise. There's one, what he has done, and that's what's going to be the rest of the message that, this evening. And we'll look at next week, or, or I'm sorry, who he is uh, this week. And then next week we'll look at what he's done. And you can read that beginning in verse 6 or at the end of verse, uh, verse 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, begin reading in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. And it goes on. You, you see there's this praise for what Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. And you see the same thing in Romans chapter 1. And so to the second point uh, of this greeting, so we had the first, the greeting itself, that it was John identifies himself, he identifies the recipients, and then we see that this greeting is not just from John, but it is a Trinitarian greeting in, in the Father, the Spirit, and now the Son. And so John in verse 5 or the end of verse 5, or beginning of verse 5, I'm sorry, through verse 7, really kind of erupts in praise. And I wonder sometimes if we really know what praise is. And so let me give you a definition from Webster's. It's commendation bestowed on a person for his personal virtues or worthy actions. Jesus have some worthy actions? I'd say he does. Gave his life. He's got some virtues as well, as we'll see. He's the, the I'm sorry, yeah, the faithful witness um, in, in Hebrews. I'm uh, getting my messages here mixed up here. Um, he goes on to say that uh, for his meritor- for his uh, or worthy actions or meritorious actions themselves um, or on anything valuable. It's an approbation, which is praise, expresses in words or song. And John is expressing his praise to Jesus Christ for what, for who he is and what he has done. So, who is he? Who is this Jesus that John is speaking about and that revelation will be the primary focus of? It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, remember. Well, look there in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. 
This faithful witness idea comes actually from Psalm 89, 27, and 37. And for the sake of time tonight, we'll not go there. Um, But it is a psalm that uh, in its immediate context speaks of David. But it's also a messianic psalm. That it speaks to uh, one who will... and, And the promise to David is that he would forever have someone reigning, sitting on his throne and reigning over the kingdom. Now... That wasn't realized in the literal sense that he has physical seed coming down that is still raining, but it is realized in Jesus Christ as he is uh, come from the seed of David. And so uh, we see this as a messianic fulfillment that Jesus is this faithful witness. This unique mentioning of Christ as the faithful witness fits with the situation that we find the churches in They're in Asia. As they were under great persecution, they were under, as we'll see as we go through these letters, they were under serious uh, persecution. As a matter of fact, um, there were some that were called atheists. And the reason they were called atheists is because they would not bow their knee to Caesar and call him Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And so they were considered atheists. They needed encouragement. They needed further grace as we see and even peace. And understand that peace is not the absence of troubled waters around us. It's not the absence of trials and tribulations. But peace um, literally means an absence of confusion. It means there's no confusion about what's taking place. If we look at our world today and we see things... I don't know if y'all paid any attention to any of the news, but... um, this last Sunday, I think it was, the Grammy Awards were on. And some of the most vile and vulgar things that you have seen in your life was being portrayed as, as empowerment for women. While at the same time, up in Canada, um, we have a pastor who is in jail, which, by the way, he is getting out. I saw today he will be getting out. They're dropping all charges, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But we see the depravity that man is sinking to. When you exalt women um, on a stage like that, that was I, it was some of the pictures that I've seen just primarily by accident looking at the news that you would see that kind of vile and vulgar stuff and that you would look at that and that would cause great consternation. And so even our day that we need encouragement from these kinds of things. We need encouragement from the trials that we see taking place. And that's sure to take place. But Jesus is the faithful witness. These verses should not be understood um, as if they're witness with the, in chapters 2 and 3 talking about the churches, um, as if their witness consisted in their suffering death. It wasn't that they were witnesses because of their suffering death, but rather that their witnessing of Jesus became the cause of their death. You see what I'm saying? That because they witnessed to who Christ was and they witnessed to what Christ had done, that became the cause of their suffering and their persecution. We ought to ask ourselves, will we remain faithful in the face of that kind of persecution? When our life is threatened for proclaiming the gospel, when our life is, our livelihood maybe even, is threatened for being a Christian, will we still name the name of Christ? And, and by the way, that, that's a mark that we'll see this week and that we consistently see in these letters in Revelation is that perseverance is the ultimate fruit of a genuine Christian. 
Moving on, he's not only the faithful witness, but he's the firstborn from the dead. This idea of firstborn speaks to his high privileged position that Christ has because of his resurrection. Remember, he done something that no other man had done. That he went into the grave and he rose never to die again. And you say, well, what about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus died again. Lazarus didn't rise, come out of the grave, didn't get called out of the grave by Jesus as an incorruptible man. But if that were the case, then he would be the first fruits of the resurrection, not Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the firstborn. He is the one who is to be highly esteemed because of what he did. Christ has gained such a uh, <coughs> excuse me, sovereign position over the cosmos, not in the sense that he is recognized as the first created being, as I think the uh, oh, the Mormons teach, um, but not as the first created being, but or as the origin, the origin, I'm sorry, of creation, but in the sense that he is the inauguration, the inaugurator of the new creation by means of his resurrection. He is the inaugurator of that, that we can look forward to this new creation, we can look forward to this new body that we will receive because of Jesus. And then lastly, um, we see in verse 5, not only is he the faithful witness, not only is he the first begotten of the dead, but also he's the prince or the ruler of the kings of the earth. This does not refer to all of his rule over his people, um, as in his kingdom, as in those who have come to him in faith, but over his defeated enemies. You understand that the enemies of God, the enemies of Jesus Christ at this moment, though they are fighting against him, are fighting a war of futility. They've already lost. The, the, Jesus has already reigned over them. This, this king of the earth is seen elsewhere in Revelation, as we will see. This includes not only the kingdoms and people, uh, peoples represented by the kingdoms, but also the satanic forces behind these kingdoms. Something we need to understand, and I think we probably have um, a view of this that, that doesn't really line up with Scripture. I'm not saying we specific here, but in general. Uh, we have this notion that Satan is running around just free doing whatever he pleases. But we have evidence in Scripture that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. He's not, and God is not the author of sin in this. We see this in the crucifixion of Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, Peter says um, that God had ordained Jesus' death and crucifixion um, in, in time past and that you wicked men by your hands have slain. Now, God did not ordain their sin. He did not condone their sin. He ordained what was going to happen, decreed what would happen, and he could trust that sinful man would do what sinful man does. What do we do? We sin. We, we do what we do. But it's, it's seen in the crucifixion of Christ. It's also seen in uh, the demonic possession in the end. Remember, we talked about 2 Thessalonians quite a bit in our, in our uh, uh, eschatology as we were working through that. And one of the things that we will see is demonic possession. Now, what I mentioned happened last week on the Emmy, on the Grammy Awards. Uh, that looks to me quite a bit like demonic possession. Think about some of the things we're seeing now in our government. 
that people would, would uh, applaud and people would fight to be able to kill unborn children. There, there has to, at the very least, be a demonic influence, if not people demonically possessed. And, and we could spend bunches of time on this. But, but this is also seen in Job as Satan approached God and God asked, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said what? Well, you've got a hedge of protection about him. You, 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 you're protecting him. And God gave Satan specific commands to follow and Satan fought, could not step outside. He said you can touch him but don't kill him. First he said that you can take everything he has. Then he said, he said you can touch him but don't kill him. And, and God, God did have his hand over Job, but Satan was also only allowed to do what God allowed him to do. Now, let me close with this. <clears throat> Christ expressed his love by redeeming his people. All, and, and we see in John six thirty seven all that the Father had given him through his death People are released from their bondage to the power and penalty of sin by identifying by faith with Jesus' sacrificial death. This suggests a priestly function, as we will see next week. And, and, and it's amazing how stuff keeps pointing back to Hebrews. But this suggests a priestly function since Old Testament priests accomplished sanctification and atonement for Israel by how? Sprinkling blood on the altar, sprinkling blood on the mercy seat, um, on their sacrifice of animals. We see that in Hebrews. Now, let me let me, let's just close this by saying this: we we read these things about Jesus. We see that he is the faithful witness, and it encourages us to be faithful in our witness. Encourages us to see what Jesus went through. That he had his face set on Jerusalem. He had his face set on the cross. And he endured those things for our sake. We see him as not only the faithful witness, but we also see him as the first begotten of the dead. That he is this, not just this supreme being, but is the, the, the supreme of all because of his resurrection. And also that he is ruling even now over the kings of the earth. Let me give you an example of that. I mentioned Pastor James Coates a while ago. Pastor James Coates pastors Grace Life Church in Edmonton, uh, Alberta, Canada. He was arrested about a month ago for refusing to quit preaching the gospel, basically. They were meeting in their church. They were gathering. They were worshiping. And he refused to, he refused, um, to, uh, to, to quit preaching. And he was arrested and put in jail. And his health was beginning to fail. Um, and he looks to be like a young man. He's got teenage kids. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand, and as rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. And we see God's sovereign control even over the heart of the kings. Now this morning, the, uh, the, the powers that be there in Canada dropped all charges against this pastor and are releasing him from prison. Let me ask you a question. You think Jesus is ruling now over the kings of this earth? Absolutely. Amen. He's ruling over the kings of this earth. And look, this as I read that this morning, I stopped and you know what I prayed for, Brother James? That God would rule in our hearts, in, in our kingdom, and in, in our leaders, that God would work a work of salvation 
in those guys. And, and would that not be a testimony to his power that you see these people begin to stand up and profess Christ? Man, what a testimony that would be. And, and what, I, I mean, what a revival that would be that we could see take place. But what if he doesn't? Well, what if he doesn't change their hearts? We must remain faithful. Why? Because God is faithful, has been faithful to His purpose throughout all generations, and Jesus remained faithful to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time together. And Lord, there's just so much information to go through and so much that we could talk about and so much that we could learn and so much that could apply to our hearts, Lord, as we look at our our present situation in in this country and lord there are many people who uh, feel like all hope is lost they're they're destitute they're they despair they're desperate but god we know that you reign we know that you are sovereign over all we know that you have the heart of the king in your hand but father we also know that you are working all things for your purpose for your honor and for your glory So, Lord, above all, we pray that your will be done. And, God, I pray that you would grant us perseverance to follow through to the very end. May you be glorified. Amen.